Good morning to you, Trinidad and Tobago. Welcome to Human Impact. And this is where we begin Doctors on Call with Dr. Rambokas and her special guest, Dr. Bismul. Good morning to you, Doctor. Good morning to you, Dr. Rambokas. Good morning, Tosca, and good morning, listeners. Good morning, Dr. Bimo. We have a special guest today on Doctors on Call. And today we're talking about cultural linguistics and health. So I'm just going to briefly introduce Dr. Bimo. He has his master's, um, his Bachelor of Medicine and Bachelor of Surgery, as well as his Diploma in Family Medicine from the University of West Indies. He's a founder of the Caribbean Hindustani. He's also a Hindi Urdu interpreter. He's a board member of the NCIC, former president of the TTME, cultural activist and entrepreneur. He's a linguistic enthusiast, and he's also an independent researcher of the Hindustanis of the Caribbean. So we welcome Dr. Bimo today. So how long? Have you been practicing medicine, Dr. Vimo? So I graduated in 2005. Um, I worked at the hospital first, the Eric Williams Medical Sciences Complex in the Department of Medicine and then Cardiology. And then I um, had a passion to be in the community um, and had uh, taken up a uh, opportunity in primary care at um, the Southwest Regional Health Authority. When I worked, I worked in local health centers, um, Pinal Health Center, Faisabad Health Center, um, Separia Health Center. Um, for from 2009 to 2018, and then um, I start I, tr I switch departments into accident and emergency still at a, at a community level um so what i'm gonna uh, talk about today would be the experience of a community doctor and appreciating language culture history as part of the elements of social inclusion a major so social determinant of health so how did you get interested in culture and linguistics? Okay, so I speak five languages. Um, the first language I would have learned is the language of my grandmother. She brought me up from the age of three months um, till the age of 16. And her first language was not English. It was Trinidad Bhujpuri. That is the uh, resultant language um, after the migration of indented laborers um, from uh, India during the period of indentorship to this country, it uh, all uh, homogenized into what was called plantation Hindustani. In Suriname, they call it Tsunami and Guyana, Guyanese Hindustani or Bhujpuri. So I was exposed to that a lot as a child. And then a second language was Trinidad English Creole which I speak fluently and I'll consider that my first language. And then after that, being educated at school, Presbyterian all the way, Warrenville, Presbyterian school into Hillview College, where I would have learned standard English, and then uh, to the university to do my MBBS. So that cultural link, language and heritage goes back to my, we say in Hindustani, Nani. Nani is my uh, maternal grandmother. <clears throat> 
Right. And what exactly is linguistics? Well, linguistics is a study of language. Language is a living entity, just like human beings. It lives among humans. And obviously, when humans die, it will. Um, language, like any living species, because I guess language is something living, just like living beings, um, it evolved based, again, on social, political, economic factors among human civilization itself, but it also is um, shaped by geography. Um, a lot of languages are linked, but because you have, let's say, different kingdoms, so let's look at Volga Latin, Frankish Volga Latin, which was in France, different location from Hispanic Volga Latin, evolved into Spanish and French. Same, same situation would have happened in India. And uh, I just want to reference Dr. Peggy Mohan, one of my mentors who did Trinidad Bhojpuri a morphological study, who basically studied the morphology of the language of my grandmother. Um, and those who speak it, we call them Trinidad Bhojpuri speakers. Um, <clears throat> the whole idea of uh, evolution, because she recently wrote a book, Wanderers, Kings and Merchants, where she looks at a Creole uh, language system here in the Caribbean, and she postulated theories about how language itself would have evolved in India, using the live example we have here in the Caribbean. Right. And how many languages do you speak in total? Well, I've lost count. Um, I don't count English and English school because these languages, well, you, uh, the average Trinidadian um, exists in a diaglossia. A diaglossia, a diaglossia mm -hmm. is where you speak two languages at different poles that vacillate between, and you speak different percentages of each. Um, when you uh, interact, and it depends on your social sphere. So me being a, a Trinidadian a medical doctor, when I speak at home, I would speak English Creole with my mom or my brother. Mm -hmm. But when I go out and speak to patients, I will still have to choose English Creole in certain contexts for patients to understand. Um, however, when I do like presentations like these or others in a formal space, I'd speak um, standard Trinidad English. And then we'll do search for language. I grew up with my nanny speaking Trinidad Bhojpuri, so I speak that. And then I grew up, I, when I went to university um, to do my MBBS, I did Hindi up to advance all the way, so I teach Hindi. And then looking for the language, Hindustani is the Caribbean. I traveled to Suriname in 2014 and pay regular visits to Suriname and the Netherlands, as well as um, Guyana. Um, I shall be going to Mauritius next year. People don't know that Mauritius was the pilot project for indentureship. And um, the first indentured laborers out of India after abolition of slavery went to Mauritius from the 1830s. So again, the search for the language and the search for a language is spoken in a community so that um, that community, once they understand each other, um, it defines it as a language. As a result, I go into Suriname and Netherlands, I speak Dutch. I also go to the French Antilles, so I speak French. Je peux parler français, and I also can speak the Netherlands. Well, for our talk today, it's quite interesting because usually when I speak a different language, I'm not seen as Trinidadian. My identity vacillates, and the communities which I, pe I feel 
socially included in and now have interactions and speaking that language um well is part of my health right and why do you think culture and linguistics is so important today well you see the thing is that social inclusion is a big part of good health if we go back to the um to uh so Mahmoud, who uh, was the father of the social determinants of health, there are 10 of them. Social inclusion is one. Um, to be able to speak a language, to be able to be part of a community with a particular heritage, and to be able to uh, interact and communicate is uh, quite important with respect to um, good health. Um, me growing up as a child, coming to Mandir, being involved in groups, I'm a board member of the NCIC, being involved in uh, the Mount Opindu Society meds and all these things. I mean, that is social inclusion, isn't it? And being an individual who can now choose my interactions based on what I like to do, augurs well for my health as an individual and also encourages others to be involved in community through communication so that um yeah we all share good health and what has your research revealed in terms of uh, hindustanis in the caribbean so i must tell you this i grew up with my grandmother speaking through that Bhojpuri. because i was a child and like a sponge i would have started on the sound was being said however my my mom and her younger siblings didn't understand so my grandparents often would speak in Bhojpuri uh, so for the sake of other people not to understand. So that was exclusion. Um, that is a classic example of, we have uh, Venezuelan immigrants here in Trinidad and the average Trinidadian doesn't want to learn English, like all English speakers. So they basically don't want to include Venezuelans in the conversation of the nation of Trinidad, the big in our English Creole or English. And they say they have to learn English. We shouldn't have to learn Spanish. Where I have a different experience, because I find that if I am not conversant in a language and I exist in the culture and the heritage, I can't take part. And I feel socially excluded. As a result of that, well, the data shows that once you have social exclusion and you feel not part of a community, it negatively impacts on your outlook in life, your mental state, which affects your physical state and your general health. Right. And how has language evolved over time? What do you think has happened to it? Has it been integrated? Well, you see people, okay. So social inclusion means expression of an identity. Speaking a language is also an important part of that element. I remember when I went to Suriname, some years ago, I had gone up to the counter and I decided, well, what language I'll speak this to this uh, airplane attendant in? And I started saying, well, who had it with you? Um, oh, good morning, mevrouw. Who had it with you? And then she started speaking with me. And afterwards, when I stopped speaking Dutch and I started speaking in, in English, Creole, or Trinidad English, she was thrown aback. Um, because she thought my identity was. Dutch. And uh, that's the important point here is that um, languages evolve for the sake of communication 
and is also or is part of who you are and your identity and speaks of where you come from. Languages like uh, Trinidad Patois and Trinidad Bhojpuri, by a British education system has always seemed to be unintelligible speech. Um, this is remnant of, I guess, the Roman Empire because we all know the word babble. Um, babble, it, it comes from, well, I used to say barbarawi, the same word, because I remember Sanskrit and Latin fair, they are sister languages. Um, so barbarawi means to babble, make noise unnecessarily, um, to be not understood. And uh, the same is um, uh, barbaric, same word barbar. So it is comes from babbling. So the Roman Empire really said they were the most civilized people and they speak the most uh, eloquent language whereas everyone else did not, again, social exclusion. And again, <clears throat> that comes within the modern context. As an English speaker, remember, you speak English, yes, but it's not a measure of your intelligence. Um, and that is why I find often English speakers would exclude people who speak other languages. And as you man cast aspersions on them as to their intelligence, if they are the educated. I mean, I speak English now, and uh, because English is the language of commerce, language of international education, I attended a public health conference in, uh, in the Netherlands. And what I noticed was that <clears throat> the common language of everybody was English to communicate, but everybody else spoke another language that was their own. Um, and well, among yes. their own groups, they would speak that language, which the other speakers couldn't understand. And, um, only if you spoke in English that you would be understood. Trinidad Patwa and Trinidad Bhojpuri again, seen as, because if I speak Trinidad English Creole, yeah, often I go in public and I would speak English Creole and people would know I'm a doctor. Again, it speaks of your status, it speaks of your profession, and it speaks of your academia. Um, if I were to speak in English Creole, people wouldn't put me in that sphere or that social class. However, um, in the same way, my, my grandmother was not, um, she only went up to what, uh, I think it was the first year in second, first day in uh, primary school. And she just spoke English, Creole, and Trinidad Bhojpuri. When I went to Suriname, I remember, I couldn't understand how the education system worked to stamp out that identity. In Trinidad, <clears throat> prior to the 1950s, the average Trinidadian could speak Patois, could speak Hindustani, could speak English Creole coming after, and then the education system started streamlining people just to speak English. So before 1950, just like in Suriname, the average Trinidadian could have spoken three languages at least. Um, Spanish, yes, to some extent, because we recently came, well, obviously we came from a Spanish colony, part of the Viceroy of Venezuela, but um, the British took over. <clears throat> and the education drive, because remember, you had to pay to go to school. That's an important factor with regard to social inclusion, having the money to pay to educate your children to be socially included. So um, from my end and my experience, I guess, being educated in a Presbyterian system that was Christian, having resourceful parents to have saved money to send me to school and university to reach where I am, being able to speak five languages, and now being able to traverse different spheres 
be it in the Netherlands, be it in Trinidad, be it in Guadeloupe, be it in Guyana, um, be it in India, um, it's quite interesting. And then I have opened up my, um, they say that speaking a language is like looking through a window. Um, the more languages you speak, the more perspectives you have of the world and the more you are able to communicate your ideas and express what you want. And that's quite important because if you can't express what you want, then you will feel socially excluded and not part of the whole of the community. And again, that impacts on health mentally, socially, physically, and otherwise. Um, if you look at the data itself, again, I, I mentioned the social determinants of the social ladder. So the higher you up on the social ladder, I tend to find that you speak more English. The lower you are, you speak uh, you speak in English, yes, maybe English, Creole, but other languages. But the thing is that the education system says if you don't speak standard English, then you're not educated. Um, and that in itself creates social exclusion. Right. And what languages do you think make up our daily spoken word today? Well, in, in Trinidad, um, in Trinidad, again, we are a diagnos, a diagnos, yeah, meaning that um, on a daily basis, informally, if I speak, I speak English Creole. I speak that to my friends. I speak that to my family. But when I go in a, a sphere of um, colleagues in the profession, I would speak English Creole. Now, people, the Queen's English, yes, the Queen's English was the standard. But that changed after America got its independence and established American English was another standard. So it's no longer the Queen's English. And people are unaware that of the pool of education. So there's English Creole, but the average person who's Trinidadian, whether they're educated or not, could speak English Creole, because that's their first language. And uh, after you become educated, the system of education that demands that you speak standard English, we don't really speak the Queen's English, but what we do speak is Trinidad standard English. And why we call it Trinidad standard English is because there are a lot of vocabulary in it that comes from remnants of our past. Remnants of our past in African slavery, remnants of our past in indentureship. I mean, a double is a double, a sahina is a sahina. Yeah. Um, there are no, kurma is kurma. There's no other words for those things so that um, the only way to express it is I would like to have a, a few kurmas, please, or I would like to have some persad, I would like to have some pilau. So, that is standard English within the context of using words that is unique to the Trinidadian identity, cuisine, um, and otherwise to now express yourself and feel socially included as part of the community of Trinidad and Tobago. Right. We have to take a short commercial break now, Dr. Bimol, and when we come back, we'll talk more about cultural linguistics and health. Good morning and welcome back. We head right back to Dr. Nadira Rambokas and Dr. Visham Bimul, who they're having a very interesting conversation here and let's inside of Doctors on Call. So good morning to you once again. Thank you, Tasca. And today we have Dr. Bimul and we're talking about cultural linguistics and medicine. So Dr. Bimul, uh, as your personal opinion, do you think that, uh, for instance, Hindi should be taught in schools, especially the denominational schools? 
I okay. So what I want to say is that I do my postgrad in public health now, and what I want to do is look at how uh, social exclusion reduces access to healthcare. Yeah, like it reduces access to everything else. Um, we yes. have Venezuelan immigrants who um, access the facility and don't speak any English, and I have learned Spanish for the sake of understanding them, so I know how to treat them. It's quite important for a doctor to take a very detailed history, right? And I think the RHAs don't include that. Um, I remember that child, yes, Hindi was quite important. Why? Because I guess it was part of our expression at home. It was part of the expressions on the radio and the TV, the Bollywood and stuff. Um, but from a healthcare perspective, now I've found myself learning Spanish as a sixth language. No, I knew it before from CXC and stuff. I didn't like it too much. I got a two. In school but um, I now am able to I travel a lot so uh, Dutch I could speak French I could speak um, but I, I I went to Mexico last year and I was able to widen my ability to speak in Spanish um, that I now have brought to work um, uh, <clears throat> so that patients who access the facility at least as a doctor um, I try to meet them halfway so they can understand what the issues are, what the problems are. And again, we go to the deaf and mute community who speak sign language. Um, right. They also have problems accessing the facility because the average doctor cannot um, speak sign language. Um, Hindi, yes, is quite important culturally, again, for social inclusion. And Trinidad Patois. I mean, I'm a Trinidadian, it's part of my identity. Uh, Calypso's were initially in uh, Trinidad Patois. And Trinidad Patois contributes um, a grammar to what we call in our English Creole, um, speaking with older individuals. I, one part of uh, my research, which is my well, own interest, was having patients who are diabetic and hypertensive and of Indian origin and came to the clinics in Pinal and Separia and Faisabad. And being able to speak to them, yes, in Trinidad, Bhojpuri, and Hindi did also help. I mean, you can't ask about pins and needles, you have to ask about Junjuni. Um, they would understand what that is. So there was a certain expression I would have grown up with as a child. There's no equivalent in English, or at least the average Trinidad old person of Indian origin or Indian person in their winter years, there are only certain words you could express to them that would help them you elicit their symptoms um, so that you could better understand why they had come to see you. And even in English Creole, because often... I can't speak to a patient like I was speaking to you now because that patient might be in a complete quandary and might not understand what I'm trying to communicate. My nanny is a classic example where if I would speak to her like this, she wouldn't be able to understand. So I'd have to ask her, which part of your body hurt in here? It hurt in here? How hard it hurt in here? So knowing English Creole has at least um, being so proud of that part of my identity, speaking Trinidad Bhojpuri, speaking Hindi, speaking Spanish, speaking Trinidad Patois, speaking English Creole, I think it makes me better equipped as a doctor. I have a stethoscope, um, I have a horoscope, I have a fondoscope. I can <laughs> see signs in the patient, but I definitely need the tool of a language as a doctor to also elicit symptoms that might be quite important in the treatment of a patient. For a second there, I thought you said horoscope instead of autoscope. 
Yes, well, yeah, that's language fear. Sometimes the, yeah, you have to enunciate well. <laughs> so, what exactly was your motivation for choosing medicine in particular? Well, the thing is that, okay, indentured laborers came from India. Well, okay, I'll give you my own personal family history. Um, my dad's side's family, my Aja, my Aja was the son of, uh, my Aja is a paternal grandfather, was the son of an indentured laborer. His name was Bimal, that's how I got my name. His brother was Timal, and they had a daughter, Sukiya, and they had come with their mom, Puyaji Rambarosi, on the SS Jura in 1889 from Kajura Gao in Azamgarh. Why they left? Because at that time in India, there was a lot of economic strife, there was a lot of famine, and that was due to the British. They didn't see a way living in that country and decided to come here. Just like our Venezuelan immigrants come to Trinidad now. So I am descendants of immigrants. Immigrants um, who are looking for a better life. Me being a doctor, my brother is an engineer. Well, I guess we climbed on the shoulders of our um, grandparents. Uh, the, so what we call is their, their resourcefulness, their... Um, ability to save for the sake of the generations to go in front of them or their offspring. Um, so Poyaji Rambarosi came here with her children, settled in the Concord estate, and had big dreams to come in this country. And at least they couldn't climb the social ladder because they weren't educated. However, they educated their children by earning money, um, cutting cane, save that money, send their children to school. My dad was a, a public servant. Uh, he was a customs officer. My mother, who's now 71 and still works, she is the industrial relations officer, or HR officer of the judiciary. And on their shoulders, me and my brother climbed because of their resourcefulness and ability to save the sense of school. And I'm a medical doctor. Aspiration I had since I was the age of five. And my brother is an electrical engineer. So I would really say that it was a realization of the dreams and aspirations of our ancestors who came here looking for a better life. And how do you think medicine ties into your drive with culture and linguistics? Well, medicine is, I'll give you a short little story and I'll say it in English school. Um, at medical school, I did learn that you involve the patients in the, their care, so you you give them the options. You could do this, it's available in the public sector. You could do that, it's available in the private sector. I would advise if you could afford to do this here in the private and then access the public, that might be the best thing. And the patient looked at me blank and I said, um, so what is your decision? He said, doctor, you have to tell me, you the doctor. I say, um, I say yeah, but use your health you have to also have make that decision uh with regard to what is best for you and the patient say no after the doctor is gone so i was taken aback because look at how these this that's what you call the uh, uh paternalistic doctor patient relationship where they put their lives in the hands of the doctor to make that decision for them um mm. i grew up I grew up as a rural boy, descendants of indentured laborers, looking at a community of people from poverty. My my nana used to sell coal at, in Port of Spain. Um, 
And uh, I learned Hindi. Well, he was literate in, 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 in Hindi, Hindustani, as well as his son, who was a pundit. I learned to read and write Hindi from. Um, but the whole idea of community spirits, um, climbing on the shoulders of your ancestors, you really do that not for yourself. You do that to uplift your people. And I think that, and I thought that if I did become a doctor, that um, I would have been able to do that. So that is a big part of why I chose the profession I'm in. Right. Well, I have to congratulate you because during COVID and all the lockdowns, uh, a group of us, including yourself, we try to help a number of patients that were affected by COVID-19. And uh, we worked as a unit and uh, we tried to facilitate these patients with your medicine and doctor's visits. And mm -hmm. how do you think COVID has affected your practice today? Well, I mean, it it, it uh, okay, so because of the individual I am, I guess, if the patient can't come to you, try to reach to them. So as you know, yes, referring patients as well, I made myself more available. It helped me get in touch with communities and be in the environment that the patient to better appreciate what their circumstances is, would be. There are a lot of things that patients don't tell you, but if you do something as simple as a house visit, um, you learn even a, a little bit more and, and you could you are able to help them through advice as a professional. What it did do negatively, I think, it stopped that access of the patient to the doctor, like to actually come to the office. And uh, a lot of patients defaulted from clinics, both in public and private. And again, that was an element of social ex exclusion. If you cannot access a health facility, be it by not being able to speak the language, or not having transport or the ability, because public transport is another big social determinant of health, to access that facility. And it wasn't the transport, really. They didn't take the transport because they were afraid that if they went to the facility, they'll get COVID. Um, that whole idea about it created that social exclusion. I want people to appreciate that when senior citizens come to the health center or the health facility, that's social inclusion because they find their neighbor there, they find their cousin there, and they sit and they talk. That was element was not there anymore. That community spirit, that regular meeting of individuals, be it in the public transport system to get to the health center or the accident emergency, um, or that space of the institution itself, which they would have access, created more and more social exclusion. Uh, people saw less of each other. I mean, we all know that when relatives die, the relatives, at least the extended ones, couldn't have come to the funeral to wish their last respects. My dad died in August this year, and I don't know if I, if if it if it was not possible for his relatives to come and see and have their last goodbyes to him, I don't know. I would I would have been distraught. Um, yeah, COVID really did did things, uh, but. At the, at the end of the day, if we still have that communication, be it uh, by phone, internet, whatever it might be, and we continue, I think we would have it, that um, social inclusion, community spirit um, at uh, uh, a virtual space, so that um, now we could recreate the physical space, which is necessary for good health, which is a big part or a big factor in social inclusion.
Right. I'll accept our condolences on the passing of your dad. We have to take a short commercial break now. And when we come back, we'll be talking more about culture, linguistics and medicine. So good morning to you once again. Ten minutes to the hour of 10 o'clock. And we step back into Doctors on Call with Dr. Rambokas. Thank you, Tosca. And we're here today talking to Dr. Bimul about cultural linguistics and medicine. So, Dr. Bimul, what are some of your most memorable encounters, whether it be in medicine or of your Hindustani research? Um, I guess both, but some uh, a lot of times um, they coincide. Yeah, remember, in, I started working in 2005, <clears throat> and then... I started at least to be a community doctor from 2010. At that time, I joined the National Council of Indian Culture. Um, and I used to work in Pinal Health Center. At Pinal Health Center, I had a lot of patients who were over 85, who were diabetic, hypertensive, and access to the clinic. And uh, they would speak English, yes. Most of them English Creole and a significant amount of them would speak Trinidad Butch Free. And those were some of my best memories. I remember once there was an old lady, she was probably about 92, and she had come to the facility. And I was speaking to her first in English, English Creole. And then I asked her, and she said, and then we started speaking in Hindustani. And a nurse came in, and she looked at the consultation. And she asked, this is Trinidad? And I said, yeah, this is Trinidad. This is how Trinidad was back maybe about 40 to, to 50 years ago, um, five decades. And it's such a pity that <clears throat> the average Trinidadian doesn't know that experience. And they don't know, I, I must tell you, the education system that we do have here in Trinidad is still... Uh, is still entrenched in colonialism. It still makes us believe that we should speak only English and we should forget all the other babble or unintelligible language that um, was spoken at home at a time when the average Trinidadian who didn't access the education system spoke at least three languages. I grew up with it. My nanny spoke um, I guess I said to English Creole, Trinidad Bhojpuri, my nana was uh, literate in Hindustani so he could read and write. And he taught me as well as his son, who was a pundit. Um, so going back to that, I guess, meeting patients who I could have reflected with, who still um, are of that era. Um, the other thing too, I'm Dr. Bimal, and I told you my family heritage. There's Bimal tracing. Um, Pinal in San Francisco in Pinal. And that's where my paternal grandparents are from. And when I started working in Pinal, everybody knew me as Dr. Bimal from Bimal Trace. And I was from Bimal Trace. But I grew up with my maternal grandparents in Kurupia, where I spent most of my life and I still live here. So, um, and then the interest, other interesting thing too is the upward social mobility story because I am the first Bimal to be a medical doctor. And before me, a generation before there was Dr. Timal, I mentioned two brothers, Bimal and Timal. Um, my father's third cousin, Dr. Timal, had gotten a scholarship to do medicine 
and uh, it was at a university in Russia and uh, he learned medicine through Russian. So again, that speaks to access, social inclusion, education, all part and parcel of social determinants of health. And um, <clears throat> it's quite amazing to know that my my uncle spoke Russian fluently. He learned his um, to be a doctor through Russian. And I think his wife still in his practice, which exists in a in um, point 14 has his medical books in Russian um, and then well me carry on the mantle and be in the first bimal to become a doctor again expressing that was the realization of the dreams of the ancestors who left having such experiences with humble people who are my patients especially those um, who are in their winter years and speaking to them in the language I grew up hearing my nanny speak. Um, it's quite amazing. And it's quite amazing in the context of an education system in English teaches you to become educated, teaches you to become a professional, but it also teaches you to forget your past. It teaches you to forget the poverty that your family came from. It teaches you to forget the philosophy that is the inheritance of your family, the religion that is the inheritance of your family, and the way of life that they live, which to me is something that is healthy. I mean, we look at the Indian population now and we see that um, it's rampant with diabetes, it's rampant with hypertension, it's also rampant with the complications of these blindness, kidney failure, and one wonders if we should go back to that community spirit of social inclusion where it's healthy to be physically active as part of your daily life, to, like my nana is a plant garden. My nanny is a plant garden. My nanny used to be in the kitchen. And I remember as a child riding bicycle, not like children these days on these, um, these tablets. Um, we used to play basketball to the back. My maternal family, um, my grandparents, live in Kunupia. Kunupia, just everybody knows the KFC at Monroe Junction, just a few houses down. Um, the old house isn't there where I grew up. That was the house of my nana's grandfather who came from India. And uh, I remember that house, quite simple, built with brick, downstairs, leaped with gobar. My nani used to have chulhas. She had a duaila and a kaila, one and two large ones. They would join in kitchens, and she used to make achar the back. Achar, she used to have to dry the mango before she made, and she used to make her own masala. And uh, the importance of things of masala, like methi, which is fenugreek, um, like <clears throat> dhania, which is cilantro, like mangrail, which is black seed. Um, jawine, which is celery seed. Quite healthy things that we would have inculcated in our everyday diet. Um, and then, well, they had cows. So I grew up on cow's milk. Um, she used to boil the milk on the uh, chulha and on top would be the cream called sari. And she would take that and put it into the, the, into the uh, jar, the glass jar bottles. Let that... Uh, spoil it is right spoil but really you know bacteria going on. and then she would boil that down to make ghee 
or ghiu, we used to call it, that you would use for a puja and use for daily things um, as part of the diet. I used to make coconut oil. And um, yeah, and I was a child in this world that existed, that was associated with quote-unquote poverty. But what I see in this community, I see a grandmother imparting her tradition, her language, and her culture to her grandson, who now is so proudly and unapologetically a person of Indian origin who's Trinidadian. You also do something called genealogy as well. Uh, what are you currently working on? So, to the genealogy or the person who started that would be Shamshuddin. A lot of people don't know that the National Archives of Strand Tobago where a lot is stored. All newspaper articles. But one important thing that was stored there was the ship pass that they used to get when they would have left India. And on it is written, and that's how I know my family heritage, the name of the individual, the next of kin, the district they came from, the police stations, the police station that that they were registered in uh, before they left via ship to come to Trinidad, the estate that they went on, as well as, well, I guess the mother's name and their father's name. And so you could uh, trace your family heritage. Um, you could go to the archive once you know the year of the ship, the name of the ship, the name of the individual. Uh, Cast helps, but not always. Um, and possibly where they would have come from in India. I remember finding the roots of dad's side family because you know the the dear the ship was eighteen eighty eight. It was the SS Dura and we know their names. Bimal, Timal, Sukia and well, I never saw my great grandmother's name until we went to the archive and it was Oya Duram Barosi. Um this information through Caribbean Hindustani and through initiatives that I, I work on, um Usually, I would uh, find this information. There's one famous family, the Dipti family, who were friends of the Bimals, right? The popular families in the South. There's the Dan Pauls, there's the Bimals, the Timals, the Jokans, everyone knows Jokan um, contractors, and the Diptis who were um, businessmen in Sparia. I remember there was one Mr. Dipti who only store in Sparia, and I did this first pacemaker for him. As a primary care physician, I was trained to do. Uh, cardiac non-invasive non investigations. Um, so primary care with an interest in cardiology. And Mr. Dipti was maybe the fifth patient with Dr. Lana Budu when offering pacemakers at the public sector, um, they could have accessed. And I remember putting in his pacemaker and he remembered me for years because I was working in Sparia. Um, and the Dipti family, I think his niece was the good friends with my aunt, who was the first principal of Parvati Girls, Mrs. Pulmati Bimal. So it is something that I want to do for my family heritage in writing to go back to the archive, find this information from these prominent families from my dad's village and mom's village, um, where I could now see these people who came, see these people who had these wild dreams, these aspirations, um, to have a better life and now see it in reality in myself, in my mom and my dad, in my cousins, indeed, indeed, uh, those who had come 1845 to 1917 looking for a good life. 
I could say that, yeah, um, they would be proud to see where the offsprings, uh, where their offsprings have reached and to look back at, at where they came from, not in a negative way or try to forget it like the education system teaches us to, but appreciate um, the, the humble place from whence we came. Um, that is the initiative of why I want to do this anthropological research in searching for people's roots in India. Well, Dr. Vimal, today we want to thank you for being educational and informative. I want to thank my co-host, Tosca, and for all our listeners out there. And I want to wish everyone a happy Diwali. And, and how can we contact you? Well, Caribbean Hindustani um, is my page. Caribbean Hindustani, a lot of the work I do language-wise, even my healthcare initiatives are on there, so people can look at it. Um, I'm at the Diwali Nagar every night um, from now until the end, which is Saturday. So I usually am around. Um, you could just ask anybody if you need to meet me. And um, CaribbeanHindustani.org is a web page where all the work I've spoken about um, is represented in some form or fashion. And I'd also like to wish everybody Aap Sabko Shubh Diwali.